Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. bow to the crickets. <laughs> I feel like if I could I would just use this hour to bow to each one of you. <laughs> um, my favorite uh, Japanese poet, uh, Isa, has a wonderful uh, haiku. He says, uh, on a branch floating downriver, a cricket singing on a branch floating downriver. A cricket singing. Those poems make so much more sense when you're in this space. Eh? If you read that on the metro in Paris, <laughs> um, um, I, I thought of that poem when we were sitting here. And, and then I, I thought of a response too. So here's how mine would go like this. Uh, on a river current going to the village, a happy rat. <laughs> Has everybody seen the rats? It's not a rat. It's a muskrat? Yeah. Water kind. Yeah. So uh, I hope you start to feel that uh, uh, what we're learning about here really just has nothing to do with belief systems and uh, really has to do what, with what happens when we unmoor or untether from our belief systems. And you can see how difficult this is, yeah. All the time, we're just, you know, uh, figuring out how what's happening is related to my belief system. Um, And what happens when we let go is the perception's just not so crowded. Uh, Some space opens up, and then uh, we have a taste of uh, what we call beginner's mind. It's that mind that when you're sitting in the hall and I say, wake up, and then you're like, oh, <laughs> that's a good idea. <laughs> How did he, is he speaking to me? <laughs> How did he know? 
So uh, beginner's mind means today we're at stage 10, which is called entering the marketplace. And um, uh, if you have beginner's mind, you see that stage 10 is stage 1. Uh, there was a teacher named Sagan who wrote, uh, Before I studied, I saw mountains as mountains and rivers as rivers. When I had arrived at a more intimate understanding, I came to the point where I saw that mountains are not mountains and rivers are not rivers. Now, that I have got a sense of rest, I see that mountains are once again mountains and rivers are rivers. I'm sure all of you had this experience where you had, you know, you looked into the river, you're like, you know, this week. It's like nothing's what I thought. And then it's a river again. And you have a body again. Um, in the late 90s, I, uh, I, I uh, followed around a yoga teacher named Richard Freeman. I, I assisted him when he taught all over the place. And, um, I was assisting him at a retreat center in uh, Massachusetts called Kripalu. I don't know if anyone's been there. Strange place, you know. I won't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, um, Richard taught like a six or seven day uh, workshop there on Ashtanga Yoga. And on the first day, you have to remember in the 90s, Ashtanga Yoga was like really intense. It's getting that way again, actually. Uh, anyways, uh, like if people weren't sweating within 30 seconds, they were like really angry. And uh, so anyways, uh, Richard spent the whole first morning, the entire morning working on samastiti, just, you know, just standing. Everybody know this posture? Just standing. People were just going crazy. And I didn't know what to do. He wanted me to help adjust people. <laughs> and I remember he said at the beginning of the feed, he's like, just make sure any adjustments you do with people are exactly, you know, related to what I'm teaching. <laughs> and then in the afternoon, all we worked on was downward dog. That was the whole first day. It's like six hours. So, uh... Then, uh, we barely made it through the standing poses all week. And then on the last day, when you think, okay, so today we're just going to go through, you know, a sequence. He just worked on samastiti. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just mind-blowing for everybody. So it's no different here with what we're doing, isn't it? I mean, here we are, it's the last full day, and you still have to come back to your breathing. But it's not the same as it was. It's your breathing again, but it's not the same. And our problems in life are like this, right? You think you keep having the same problem again, but when it comes back again, it's not the same. We see it with a little more clarity 
So uh, let's remember the practice starts with letting go, finding your breathing, soft. I like to think of it as a very mischievous smile. It's like a, you know something, but you can't share it. And you're nine. <laughs> The Buddha says in the Anapanasati Sutta, uh, one trains oneself breathing in, I experience the whole body, and breathing out, I experience the whole body. So teachers will focus a lot on uh, this. And, that, and the part of the sentence that always struck me the most is the beginning of the phrase, you train yourself. You train yourself. Nobody can do it for you. And what's the whole body? It's, um, it's not just your nostrils. If you're feeling your breath in your nostrils or at your upper lip. or It's not the space behind your navel. It's, it's the feeling of how your body responds to the breathing. I said this morning that... Uh, the relationship between the breath and the body is like the relationship between waves and the ocean. So the waves are on the surface of the ocean. Just like paying attention to your breath, it's just that's the surface of mindfulness. But when you go down deeper and deeper, there's currents, there's subcurrents, sub sub subcurrents, sub 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 subcurrents. Sub, sub, and then it's very, very still at the bottom of the ocean. Or so I have read. And you can feel when you're breathing, there's very gentle waves in the spine. All the diaphragms are doing different things. Um, the tongue gets very, very quiet. Can everybody feel the tongue settling? on the retreat this week? Not yet. When you make this shape with your fingers, let's all do that together. Yeah. This, this part here, this is the roof of your mouth. And um, I say to students, for the first three years, you should learn how to relax your tongue. So this doesn't change. This is the roof of your mouth. Yeah? For the first three years, you should just learn how to leave your tongue alone. And people are like, oh, I can do it. I can leave it. And I'm like, <laughs> just watch. And, um, and then eventually, uh, we take the tip of the tongue and we touch it just behind the two front teeth uh, where your gums touch your teeth. Everybody feel that? So, uh, when you do that, uh, for the first while, your muscles here will, will tense up a little bit along the scalenes, but um, eventually, uh, you stop producing saliva when you do that. And then you don't have to swallow when, you, uh, when you're in meditation practice. Uh, but it takes a long time to get your tongue quiet enough to do that without any tension. So, don't do it yet. But eventually, you can, you can try this. 
Um, so all of these techniques are so you can just feel how there's the surface of the breath that's moving the body. I always tell people, get your body so still that the only thing that you can feel is your breathing. Did I say this already? And then pregnant women always say, that's not true. <laughs> I'm feeling all kinds of things. <laughs> um, and uh, then the Buddha says, uh, as you train in familiarity uh, with the whole body, then you start to calm bodily formations. Bodily formations. Which are the physiological uh, triggers and reactivities and habits uh, that are psychophysical. So as you're relaxing your breathing, the whole body, you're calming the bodily fabrications, formations. And the word uh, sankara, or in Sanskrit, uh, sankara, is a really uh, interesting word. A sum means uh, to come together. It's the equivalent of the word in English, uh, com, C-O-M, like community. And uh, scar is where you get the English word scar. So it's actually the way that uh, when, when something happens, it always leaves a scar, always leaves a trace. Right? You walk, it leaves an imprint. You say something to someone, there's a consequence. You speak, there's an effect. So um, the effects come together and leave traces and leave imprints in our psychology, in our physiology, in our economy, in our ecology, everywhere. Everything you do leaves a trace. So in meditation practice, when you contemplate what it means to calm bodily fabrications, when you understand that you're calming the samskaras, what you're actually calming are all of the habitual grooves in us that are not just from us, they're also the momentum of habits from our culture. Because when you notice, most of your habits are learned and internalized from our society. Aren't they? I mean, mostly we think, oh, they're my habits, you know. But actually, when you look more closely, they're pretty systematic, you know. And um, there's no mental formation that's not also a physical formation. And there's no physical formation that's not also ecological and economic and political and social. So, for example, if you're feeling uh, frustrated, which I'm going to talk a lot about today, you're feeling frustrated, and you can feel frustrated, and you can use your whole body breathing to calm the frustration and ride it out. Um, this has an impact on your family, the samskaras of your family. And this has an impact on the samskaras of our natural world. Because if you're frustrated, you're not going to go, um, what do you do when you're frustrated? Shop. You're not going to go shop. <laughs> so, 
that's why um, entering the marketplace uh, has to include this meditative awareness. Because actually just sitting on your cushion is entering the marketplace. When you go home and you wake up in the morning and you sit down on your cushion, you're changing the scars of your mind, your heart, your body, your ancestors, your city. <laughs> Everything is changing. There's a wonderful story about a Trungpa Rinpoche, the Tibetan teacher teaching in San Francisco. And there was hundreds of people, you know, it was very popular and everyone was sitting and he was talking about, you know, compassion. And someone put up their hand and said like, here we are all day like meditating. How is that good for the world? Yeah. And he said, well, we all just sat together all day and you didn't do anything stupid. <laughs> <laughs> We start to see in our minds that our, our mental life is uh, so oriented towards the future because it's so connected to desire. Um, we look forward to what we want. And when you look at that closely, mostly it's pleasure. How can I figure out how to get more pleasure? Basically is what we're asking all the time. And you can never stop uh, all of your fantasies, all of your needs, all of your desires. You can certainly work with the part of you that grasps them and clings to them and thinks you have to satisfy everyone. But you can never stop the whole range of fantasies because our brain loves novelty. And um, the problem is, is that... Um, All of your desires can't be met. All of your needs can't be met. All of your fantasies can't be met. And so you get frustrated. And when you get frustrated, you revert back to the way your parents helped you tolerate your frustration when you were young. So, um, these are the frustration samskaras. Uh, little kids uh, are experts in frustration. Think about a baby. A baby, up until probably, people debate about this, but I think it's close to two. A baby doesn't completely know, a child doesn't completely know, that the mother's breast doesn't belong to them. <laughs> and in a way, maybe this is the beginning of the ego. And one of the reasons why we communicate is because we start to realize that the breast is not ours. Some people never realize this. <laughs> um, so, uh, so there's lots of... Um, psychological studies about this that many of you probably know but um, when mm. a kid uh, needs the breast 
The breast is a metaphor. That's not necessarily a breast. It, but, but the kid needs nourishment, needs to be held. And maybe the parent doesn't show up in time or doesn't show up at all. And then the kid uh, is frustrated but uh, hasn't, isn't being modeled how to deal with the frustration because the parent isn't able to meet the kid for whatever reason. So then um, one of two things happen. One is um, the child has to make up a fantasy about an idealized parent in order to comfort themselves. Um, Or the kid uh, dissociates from what they're feeling. Uh, in one psychology school, they say uh, people in this situation either are better at feeling but not dealing, or dealing but not feeling. So in other words, like some kids learn how to, they get so overwhelmed by what they're feeling, they don't know how to deal with it. And some kids they get so strategic about how to deal with the situation that they can't actually feel anything. You know who you are. Um, but anyways, I think uh, when we meditate, <clears throat> one of the things we're doing is uh, we're learning how to work with frustration. And we're learning uh, practices so that we can soothe ourselves when we're frustrated. And uh, this is very important. I once in a while joke that meditation is reparenting. Because uh, when you have mental states that uh, you haven't learned how to tolerate, you learn how to tolerate them in your sitting practice. And they show up at a pre-verbal level. Like, it's not like, oh, there's that state it's related to. It's like, in your body, you feel like, I just need to get the fuck out of here. You know? mm -hmm. Has anyone had this mm -hmm. at all? It's like, I, like... <laughs> Ten more seconds, you know, and, and if Annette does not ring that bell, I am, <laughs> I am out of here. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, says that um, if we're going to seriously reconsider uh, our economic model, uh, it has to begin with kids. And the place it has to begin is teaching kids how to tolerate frustration. And the Dalai Lama calls meditation something very interesting. Some of you, if you've heard him talk about kids, he says such beautiful things about young people. But when he talks about meditation and young people, you know what he calls meditation? The ethics of restraint. The ethics of restraint. Because... We need to teach people to have desire and to have fantasy, but to have enough space around it where they don't have to feed it, where they can learn about it. Because actually in that space, um, there is some creativity. But what's the consequence of not being able to bear frustration? And the consequence, and we all know this, is you can't be satisfied. If you don't know how to work with being frustrated, you don't know how to be satisfied. 
And nobody is going to help you, actually. These patterns get laid down. I really believe some patterns don't get laid down in childhood and they're just ancestral. But I actually think this one is very, very much related to our, our childhood. So, um, when you eat, uh, your body needs to uh, digest. Uh, but in our culture, we don't digest so much. We eat, and 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 we eat. And uh, we're being uh, force-fed. The internet is uh, stuffing us. Advertising is like force-feeding us. And if you don't think this is true, go hang out with a teenager. An urban teenager. This is, I think, one of the worst things about pornography. Yes, yes, I'm sure there's some good cases for pornography. Maybe it expands people's ideas or lots of good reasons. But uh, the problem with pornography is that it, uh, it gives people stimulation who are overstimulated whenever they want. So the second they feel any kind of desire, they can go to pornography. It's there all the time. So then we can't feel our sexual energy very wisely because uh, the level of stimulation is so high. The image-making machine is like running at full speed. And then uh, we don't know how to wait. And when I say we, I'm talking about all of us, but I'm also talking about our society, especially young people. And when I talk about porn, I'm not just talking about sex. I'm talking about uh, how anything that you're interested in pretty much, there's a porn version of it. House renovations. <laughs> um, any, pretty much like woodworking. <laughs> And the point of capitalist culture is if we keep overfeeding you, you won't know what you want. And then your self-esteem will get low, and then you'll be distracted, and then we can sell you what we tell you you want. That's the logic. But one of the things that we notice in our practice is that getting what you want doesn't satisfy you. Have you noticed this? You get what you want, and then you want something else. And sometimes it takes ten croissants. <laughs> so what if we began thinking about education as being entirely about creating this gap between uh, feeling frustrated and not needing to fill it? Feeling desire and not needing to fill it. 
And then we start to feel a deeper satisfaction, more meaning in our life, and more depth. More depth. Do you know what I mean by this? How do you feel like you really want something? How many times have you wanted something on this retreat? And you sit with it and you see the wanting change and become something else. And then the space that's created from that is more pleasurable than whatever it is you thought you wanted. This is the secret. (laughs) This is the secret of yoga. Don't tell anybody, though. Here's the secret. The secret is letting go of what you think you want is more pleasurable than whatever the object can give you. Because the power of being able to let go of craving surpasses anything else. And then you go have a glass of wine. And it's just a glass of wine and it's so great. Right? You go have a croissant. It's like, oh my God. A gluten-free, (laughs) dairy-free, local air made into the shape of a (laughs) croissant that smells like butter. My partner Karina has uh, celiacs. Do you know? Do you know what this is? Yeah. And uh, so she can't have any gluten since she was uh, young, really young, since she was in her teens. And um, so. uh, when we go to Copenhagen, she just freaks out because the 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 uh, bake. Actually, we always stay. This is Peter's fault, but we always end up staying like within one block of this amazing bakery, the best bakery in Copenhagen. So she has this practice where she like always wants to go in the bakery, and she just stands there and she just smells. And she's so satisfied. And then sometimes, like, I'll eat something, and then I won't feel so good, and like. She'll have more satisfaction. <laughs> so, anyways. Uh, there's a wonderful French philosopher whose work I have always followed very closely named Gilles Deleuze. Uh, he says, um, My aim is not to rediscover the eternal or the universal, but to find the conditions under which something new is produced. find the conditions under which something new is produced. Our aim in our practice is not to get enlightened. Sorry. I hope we debunk that one this retreat. (laughs) And our aim is not to reach some state of purity. Our aim is to learn how to create spaciousness so we create the conditions for something new to arise. A new unrehearsed response. To a situation. That's beginner's mind. That's entering the marketplace. How do you want to enter the marketplace? In a way that's not compulsive. In a way that's not obsessive. In a way that's not haunted by who we think we're supposed to be. What we think success is. So, 
all of these stages, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, they all show up in an eight-day retreat. Have you seen this? It's like an arc. And they all show up in ten years of practice. And they all show up in one 30-minute sip. And in one breath. They all show up in one breath. It's like... (laughs) (laughs) So stage 10 says, Entering the marketplace barefoot and unadorned, blissfully smiling, though covered with dust and ragged of clothes, using no supernatural powers. Love this line. This is the last line of the text. Using no supernatural powers, you bring the withered trees spontaneously into bloom. So, using no supernatural powers, you bring the withered trees spontaneously into bloom. And it's a picture of a guy fishing. I mean, of course, he's, he's giving them all back. He's not catching anything. <laughs> he's fishing for tofu. <laughs> so uh, this is Kuan Yin. This is the Bodhisattva vows. This is having eyes in your hands. The Bodhisattva will do anything in the marketplace for people to wake up. In China, there is a great story of a bodhisattva. Remember I was saying all the bodhisattvas have tools? There was one bodhisattva who um, was very beautiful, and she seduced men, saying, I will sleep with you if you just memorize this sutra. (laughs) So good. And Avalokiteshvara is here listening to what's needed in the marketplace and responding. And if you cry, she'll hear you cry. If you laugh, she'll giggle with you. If you're in pain, uh, she'll cry with you in pain. And if you're frustrated, she's frustrated with you. But it's okay. So this uh, last piece is taking stage nine further, which is saying all that's left to do is just completely give yourself. And if something's withered, it will come to life. So uh, John Dido Lori, uh, whose commentary I've been looking at a little bit while teaching this, um, can I read you his commentary on this, this section? He says... Um, When I first met my teacher, Maizumi Roshi, and Maizumi Roshi um, taught at the Zen Center of Los Angeles, and, and his main students were John Dido Lori, uh, Joan Halifax, uh, Pat O'Hara, who I study with, uh, Bernie Glassman, who I've also studied with, John Dido Lori. He happened to be one of these teachers that just produced an amazing crew. <laughs> So anyways, listen to him describe his teacher. When I first met my teacher, Maizumi Roshi, I was very grateful for his appearance in my life. Actually, that's just, I could just end there. That's, so, that's a, such a beautiful thing to say. 
I wanted to express my appreciation. Oh, I should also say, uh, Dido Lori, this Zen teacher who's writing, is a really great photographer. Really, really good photographer. So I wanted to express my appreciation, so I gave him a very special photograph I had taken. It was the last copy of an image that was excruciatingly difficult to print. Originally, I made five or six images before the negative was damaged. I had sold all of them but this one print at an exhibition. And I loved that picture. I wanted to keep it for myself. But I was so taken by my first meeting with Roshi, his first meeting, that I presented it to him as a gift. And it was a gift of my heart. It was the most precious thing I could offer him, and that's why I gave it to him. Remember I was talking about that feeling of just giving? Three months later, when I started to formally study with him, I was visiting the house of one of his students living in the area, and there on the wall of the hallway was my picture. <laughs> I got really upset. I couldn't understand. I gave him my heart, and he handed it to someone else. I asked the student, where did you get that? He said, oh, I was admiring it at Roshi's house, and he gave it to me. <laughs> Two years later, I got a clear picture of my teacher's attitude about non-attachment. I happened to walk into his house one morning a few days after a famous sculptor had chiseled an incredibly gorgeous head of Maitreya Buddha for Roshi. So Maitreya Buddha is another Buddha of compassion. It was very big with Western features, which was very rare at the time. It sat like a jewel on the mantelpiece, and as I walked into the living room, it shocked me right in the forehead, and I exclaimed, Wow, Roshi, what a beautiful piece. Where did you get that? Oh, so-and-so gave it to me. It's amazing. Here, take it. And as he handed me the statue, I looked beyond him and I saw his wife standing in the kitchen door, her eyeballs falling out of her head. She was an artist and I knew she knew the real value of that sculpture. I knew I shouldn't take it. So I said, no, 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 Roshi. And he said, oh, yes, yes, yes. So I said, no, no, no. Yes, yes, yes. No, no, no. Yes, yes, yes. Finally, I forcefully insisted and put the head back on the mantel, and Roshi's wife relaxed. <laughs> but that's the way he was. He was like that with everything. There were no exceptions. He had lots of things around him, and he didn't hold on. He didn't cling to anything. So all of us in this room, we might not have so many possessions, some of us, uh, but we have the capacity to nourish, don't we? We have the capacity to heal. We have the capacity to recognize what's good in people. So we have so much to give. A Sung Dynasty uh, teacher said, the one who preserves practice from old age to death, deep in the mountains and in the valleys, is not as profound as the one who practices with a group of people in a community. Some of you have heard me quote, I've done it many times, uh, one of my favorite lines 
uh, is um, uh, the small retreat is going deep into the mountains and practicing with them and the rivers. Uh, but the great retreat is disappearing in the village. So there's a time in all of our lives where you have to just retreat. Enough's enough. And you have to leave and you have to come here and you have to be with mountains, be with the rivers. And so it's so important. We all have to do this. But um, no matter where you go, there's other people. No matter where you go, there's animals, farmers, people you rely on for your food. We're always in relationship. So the most profound kind of retreat is uh, to be anonymous in community. To be anonymous doesn't mean to hide. It means just to give freely without needing to be in the newspaper for it. You know. So that's what I feel like I do with you. I come here, give you every ounce of everything I have. And it feels so good for me. It feels so good. And I hope it will make you feel like, oh, I can give every ounce of what I have. And it might make you ask, what do I have? To discover your, your treasure. And at the same time, I'm aware that uh, this is our last Dharma talk. And in a way, the central teaching of uh, this practice is um, that nothing lasts. Not love, not bodies, not this retreat. Not even our breathing. And so when you're here, you're learning the flavor of uh, undisturbed attention. Which is just praying, really. But also, uh, you can't hold on to it. And that's what this tenth stage is reminding us. But, uh, some of you had experiences on this retreat that were really found. Some of you, maybe this retreat was really hard, but uh, I want to caution you when you go home of uh, when you talk about this retreat of being careful how you talk about it because you can convince yourself that it was a certain something. Mm. <laughs> but uh, it's empty of whatever you think it is. How on earth could you describe this retreat? <laughs> so I encourage you, uh, as we leave this retreat, to uh, just keep feeling with your whole body what this is like. So you feel how profound some of it was, how deep some of it was, how hard some of it was. Some of you were really scared about coming on retreat. Some of you are really, really scared about coming on retreat. <laughs> Some of you, one of the biggest shifts that I noticed is that you allowed yourself to uh, be inhabited by other people. To take in other people, practicing together.
And the great lesson is that life brings us home to ourselves uh, if we allow it. If we're not so caught up in where we're going, who we are. Life just brings us home to ourselves if you trust. The idea of uh, trying to be perfect doesn't interest me really. The idea of trying to attain some perfect state doesn't hold so much interest for me. Um, and the idea of trying to avoid life doesn't either. But um, if you can make friends with your suffering, if you can soothe your frustration, then uh, you start coming back to the source. So next time you feel like, uh, holy shit, I have so much baggage. But don't let that separate you from other people. Just see that thought. Because uh, the world is about to change more radically than you can imagine. But um, we know that there's something deeper we can trust. Even though we're always told to be scared and be cautious and save money for your retirement. When the World Trade Centers were uh, hit, uh, 25,000 people escaped. And when a lot of them were asked how they escaped, they described remaining calm. A quadriplegic accountant was carried down 69 stories by five of his co-workers. That's the opposite of the selfish panic that we're told about. Uh, people commandeered small boats and yachts and everything they could and uh, helped evacuate 500,000 people that day from downtown Manhattan. Can you picture this number? 500,000 people on boats and barges and ferries. <clears throat> so all these people from one shore saw on the other shore danger, smoke, and they went straight in towards it to go help people. When people escaped and ran across the Brooklyn Bridge, apparently there were hundreds of Hasidic Jews giving out bottles of water. During the Occupy movement, one day it was really, really cold, and we were all freezing, so cold. And this old lady came, and uh, she saw that everybody was cold. So she had one of those like metal carts that you put your groceries in, with blankets in it. And then she un uh, opened up all the blankets, and there were potatoes in tin foil. 
And she said, this is the best, hot. She said, this is the best thing to eat because when a potato is hot in tin foil, it stays hot a long time, so it will warm up your body while you're eating it. <laughs> uh, you all have stories like this from your own life. Our natural instant is compassion. Maybe some of you uh, will form organizations. Maybe some of, some of you will make art. Maybe some of you will say, God, you know, I can like step up the way that I'm parenting and really show up for my family. And maybe some of you will say, I keep torturing myself with this idea that I should have a family. And I don't want to have a family. And you can let that go too. Okay? And also we should keep in mind as we uh, enter the marketplace that um, our future generations are all watching us. I always thought, imagine if little kids were brought into the government and they were asked, like, should we buy missiles or should we buy books? <laughs> Do you think any kid would say, yeah, more of those airplanes with bombs? Okay, some boys might say. <laughs> So uh, whether it's psychologically in our own hearts or whether it's in our communities or in our families, uh, the kind of homeopathic level of meditation practice is to realize that, that life, life is conducive for more life. If you create the conditions for life, you get life. And if you create the conditions that are are toxic to life, you get a perverted version of life. If in your heart you're planting, you're reinforcing seeds of jealousy and envy, that's the way the world is going to look. So, this might be a disappointment because there's no blueprint. No one's going to say, Okay, now go do this. I'm certainly not going to say that. But um, here's my advice. Just go do it. And worry about it later. <laughs> this is what I always do when I'm scared. When I'm scared, I always say to myself, try something. So you, you should think about this on retreat. One of my teachers, Norman Feldman, um, he always says uh, when a retreat ends for the first 48 hours you shouldn't make any big life decisions <laughs> because you're really in this deep state you know. and I always say the opposite to people when the retreat ends you should make some really big life decisions tonight you should make some decisions 
I've made some of my best decisions right after retreat. So, um, please continue this practice. Start at the beginning. Just find your breathing. And if you do, uh, you'll be more careful and more considerate with other people. You'll uh, see sometimes that ways you speak can be really harmful. And you can see there's ways to speak that are uh, really healing. And um, when you have things around you, you should also treat them with so much care. If you have stuff, you should repair it. Don't throw it away. So it lasts a really, really long time. Forever. It should last forever. So let me end with uh, Isa's poem. On a branch floating downriver, a cricket singing. So let's not forget that. My friend Sarah, who's a writer, she always says that. After coming on retreats, she developed this practice where she says what she does is she stops and she says to herself, look at this as if I had to write about it in two years. Let's do that right now. Like, take in this moment with your whole body as if you wanted to remember it in detail in two years. Look around. 